Hello friends and welcome to the Midweeks. We're transitioning into 2 Samuel. So this is quite, quite an event. We've finished an entire book of the Old Testament and now we're going to be moving into its partner, its twin. My understanding is that these two books would have been written together and that they've been separated into first and second books, like first and second kings, because of their size. And so often if a book was going to be too big to be in one scroll or in one book, they would just break it in two, and that way you have the entire unified story, but in a way that can actually be written in books. So that's how I understand it. I could be wrong, but that's why you have a first Samuel and a second Samuel. It's because back in the day when books were huge and expensive or scrolls were gigantic and expensive, you couldn't put the entire book on one scroll and still have it be super usable. And so you'd break it up into two so that you could manage it better. But we are in the beginning of Second Samuel, and I'm just going to read and make comments. That's what we do here. I just read along and make comments, and you learn as you listen, and you can think along with me. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. That's the first verse. Now, this these, this verse unites us completely with what just happened. The last two stories we had were the death of Saul, and then the one before that is David rescuing his family and all his men's family who had been pillaged from Ziklag by the Amalekites. Remember, the Amalekites came when David was on the border, getting ready to attack Israel with the Philistines, and he was rescued from being with the Philistines, attacking Israel by being sent home, and when he got home, he found out that his all his possessions and family had been kidnapped. And so he went and found those Malachites and killed them, and now he's been home two days. Verse 2. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground and paid homage. All right, so I often will talk about seeing these stories as having a camera lens. And you can kind of picture here the the camera is inside of David's camp, and someone sees someone coming from the direction of Saul's camp towards Ziklag. And as he comes clearer, what you can see about him is that his clothes are torn and there's dirt on his head, which is a sign of mourning and a sign of uh, loss in battle. Now, this story of a battle report is meant to be compared and contrasted with two other battle reports in the book of First and Second Samuel. You might remember earlier on, there was the battle report where Eli was waiting for news when Israel took the Ark of the Covenant to fight the Philistines and they were defeated. And then later at the end of this book, when Absalom attacks David's men in that civil war, and David is waiting at home for a war report and they come and tell him that his son has been killed. And so there are at least three, maybe more significant war reports in this book. And they're actually somewhat spaced out, right? One at the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. And we're supposed to see that as unifying features in the book. There's a balance to it. It's like there's a teeter-totter. There's one war report. This is the one in the middle, which is the fulcrum. And then there's one at the back. And so there's three war reports. The war that um, ends Eli's household. This is a war report that ends Saul's household and the final war report is the one that doesn't end but it ends the life of David, uh, David's son Absalom and his household in rebellion. All right, verse 3, and David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to, to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. Okay, so th 
they've lost, as opposed to Saul died during a victory, and Saul and his sons and Jonathan also are dead. And there's the important news. And David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? So David is very shrewd. And this guy just comes running out of nowhere. And so he, there is some interrogation here to make sure he's telling the truth. Verse 6, the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to him, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head, and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Okay, we'll stop there. Now, if you read the last couple of chapters, you know that this telling of Saul's death is quite different than the previous one. The previous one talked about Saul being wounded by archers, wanting his uh, armor bearer to kill him. His armor bearer refused because he's kind of a noble dude. Saul falls on his own sword and dies, and the armor bearer dies with him. That is the story being told here. And this story is very different. Not long ago, higher critics, Bible critics, would look at these two contrasting stories and say, aha, the Bible is just a slap together of a bunch of different stories. It can't actually be God's word. Look, it's put together just like patchwork. It's sewn together like a patchwork quilt. It's not a unified story. That's one way of looking at it. More recently, um, narrative critics have looked at this and said, no, 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 no. This is not a case of two different stories about how Saul died being put into the same Bible. This is how you expose a liar. We have from the first story, the prophetic narrator, narrator, excuse me, who wrote the book, tell us what actually happened with Saul dying on his spear. And then we have some guy show up who tells us a different story. And because it's his own mouth and his own words, it's not the narrator saying it, and it's not God saying it. So the narrator speaks for God because he's a prophet. It's not God saying it, it's not a narrator saying it, and this person hasn't been established as a trustworthy witness. What we're meant to say is, ah, the facts that that this guy's details don't line up with the previous story means that he's a liar. So very likely this Amalekite was hovering around the battle looking to do some pillaging after things were done. So he probably found Saul's body before the Philistines got him and took him away and stripped the body of uh, precious objects, which is why he has the crown and the armlet. And he probably thought to himself, I know what I can do. I can go and ingratiate myself to this new King David by bringing him this stuff. And I need to make up a story. So I'm going to make up a story that's going to ingratiate me to David. I'll say, I found Saul. He was almost dead. He gave me permission to take this stuff because he asked me to kill him. And here's the stuff. And he's probably going to wait around for some great reward. So, and the fact that, you know, we have Amalekites named once, it was the Amalekites that had robbed David previously and David destroyed them. And the fact that this guy's an Amalekite, that doesn't bode well for it. Just that that connection there, it doesn't mean every Amalekite's bad, but they were enemies of Israel. And it likely means that, you know, the same way David just took out a bunch of thieves, this Amalekite is also likely a thief. Verse 11, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they'd fallen by the sword. Okay, so this is appropriate godly mourning. And so they enter into mourning. Even though Saul was his enemy, uh, David is going to mourn him. 
and definitely mourning his friendship with Saul. Jonathan, verse 13, And David said to the young man who told him, Where did you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Okay, so this is what David had been learning previous to this. In that time in the cave, in that time where he snuck into his camp, David refused to attack Saul because of, for the fear of the Lord, because it was the Lord's anointed. And so that's his standard of holiness. And so he's wondering why this guy was, was willing to actually kill the king. That's a regicide. And verse 15, Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So what's going on here is I'm, I'm not sure if David actually believes the guy, but he knows the guy has confessed to kid committing a capital crime and so that's all he needs to know this is like an official witness how did you get this stuff well i killed the king and took it that's all that david needs to know it could be true it could be false doesn't really matter the guy's already admitted to doing enough to deserve death and so david gives him his just reward verse 17 and david lamented with the this lamentation over saul and jonathan his son and he said it should be taught to the people of judah behold it is written in the book of jashar he said okay so that's verse 18 just point out here, so we're going to have a poem to start book two, and this poem is going to also provide some balance in the book. You might remember at the beginning of this book, um, when the book starts, we have the story of Hannah um, becoming pregnant by miracle with Samuel, who's going to be the king anointing prophet, and she sings this song about the kingship, right? She sings this song, and in it she prophesies that the Lord's going to be raising up a king. And so David, at the death of the first king, he's the second king, but at the death of the first king, he's going to also sing a song. He's also going to compose a poem. And this book will also end with two poems that David writes, a longer one and a shorter one. And just so you know, people who study this stuff, and I think it's true, they will say anytime you see a poem, you need to stop and assume it's there for a really good reason. The narrator has just decided to slow down telling his story long enough to put in a whole poem and it's meant that poem is very important and it's meant to uh, slow you down meant to read it and it's oft often meant to be a landmark like something humongous is happening and then at the end of the book where you have these two poems back to back anytime you find two poems put back to back it is a significant uh, section of the book and of the bible I think Deuteronomy ends with a double poem. I think Genesis ends with a double poem. I could be wrong on that one. Um, but definitely Deuteronomy ends with a double poem. And whenever you have two poems back to back in a book, it is meant to really grab your attention and cause you to slow down. And you're supposed to assume something important is going on. And often what it is, is there's going to be a messianic prophecy in these things. I think it's Numbers, sorry. It's Numbers has a double poem when Balaam is doing his job. He does a double poem on the third one. And part of that is there's a messianic prophecy about the Messiah coming. And so you're meant to look for that. Whenever you see a double poem in the Old Testament, go looking for a prophecy about the Messiah or about the end of, end of days or something like that. Anyhow, it might not always be true, but I've noticed it's regularly true. And there you go. You know something a little bit more. Anyhow, here is the poem that David, uh, sorry, one more thing. Note, notice here that there's a reference to another book. We don't actually have the book of Jashar. It's not, wasn't collected as scripture, but it is 
brought into scripture as an outside source. And it's good to know that as we're seeing how scripture was composed, the prophetic narrators were kind of historians and they didn't have a problem quoting other texts. And so these texts become part of our scripture and they're obviously authentic and trustworthy enough to be included as something presented to us by God. But it's good to, to just notice that sometimes Moses did this and whoever wrote this one, they actually included quotations from other books that aren't in the Bible. And it's good to just know that that's part of how inspiration worked when these documents were being created for the church. Verse 19, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places, how the mighty have fallen. You might call this poem, How the Mighty Have Fallen, because you'll hear that line a few times as David commemorates these warrior kings or the warrior king and princes uh, who have been killed. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, let not let the daughters of the Philistines, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. So he doesn't want the bad guys being happy. You mountains of Gilboa, that's where Saul died. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with all oil. So he calls on the mountains themselves to go into mourning for the bad things that happened on them. Verse 22, for the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war perished. Okay, so that's the end of the chapter and the end of the psalm. And you can see how, again, this this line, how the mighty have fallen, adds some balance to it. It's in the first little bit. It's in the first uh, first line, the, how the mighty have fallen. It's, it's in the middle again. Uh, let's see here. Well, middle-ish, verse 25, how the mighty have fallen, and then it ends it on the 27th, how the mighty have fallen. And so interestingly, you know, we talked about the book starts with a poem, has a poem in the middle, and ends with two poems. We talked about how there's a battle report in the beginning, a battle report in the middle, and a battle report at the end. This poem also has how the mighty's fallen in the middle, how the mighty's fallen, not, sorry, mighty's fallen in the beginning, not totally in the middle, but there's a, a middle one. And then at the end, how the mighty have fallen. So there's this balance. And you can see these things. And the Old Testament writers, poets, and uh, narrators both really enjoyed creating balance in their works of art as they tell God's story. It, it I think, theologically lines up with how God created this ordered universe. So they want their stories about God to have a sense of order to it. And it also just makes it beautiful. All right. Do you remember also there was a little uh, poem that was about Saul and David that created some trouble about Saul had killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. And so here is David creating a song that commemorates Saul's uh, power in battle along with Jonathan. And there's no comparison here. He's managed to pull it off in a way that Saul comes off looking really good. And so he's showing honor to the original king who was his father-in-law and to Jonathan. And he also has that line here about or two lines, 25 and 26, about his specific affection for Jonathan. Remember, as soon as David killed Goliath, Jonathan um, became very affectionate towards him, and they formed a special bond, and their hearts were united. And David is commemorating Jonathan's faithfulness to him there. 
people have debated what it means for his love to surpass the love of women and who knows but I think back in those days this would be like an admission of like same blood in the same mud brothers in arms navy seals kinds of we we've fought and killed and almost died together and so they've had these um, experiences of battle together which really united them and that's being commemorated here all right so this is chapter one of second samuel it's got david receiving the report of saul's death and um, weeping over it as well as executing kingly justice over um a liar and a cheat and we also have David teaching his people to honor Saul and Jonathan by teaching them this new poem that commemorates the end of the life of the first king which balances off with the poem prophesying the kingdom through Hannah as well as David's poems at the end of this book which commemorate his own kingship in the Lord so church be blessed we are now in the second half of the book and i hope you are learning and hope your heart is being amazed at god's word and growing in faith through studying the life of david